Father, we do thank you for the opportunities you have given us, small ways, big ways, Lord, everything in between. Lord, we just pray for the these uh, couple Jehovah's Witness gals, Lord, that you would um, show them, uh, Lord Jesus, that you are not just a high created being. You are God the Son incarnate. And uh, we pray that you give Gary words to speak um, and that you would protect his own mind um, and heart from um, from um, any deception on their part. Lord, thank you for the opportunity Emily had with the driver um, and just being able to talk about um, church and what church is supposed to look like. Lord, we pray that we would walk in a way that is honorable and pleasing as a church, um, that we uh, might truly represent you in the way that you would want. Um, Lord, we do uh, just pray for souls and pray for opportunities to speak to people, uh, to proclaim your word, and that you would save um, uh, people as you have saved us. Um, Lord, we know the message sounds foolish to our world, but it's through that foolishness that you actually save um, people um, because your wisdom is, uh, the foolishness of you is wiser than men, um, Lord, as First Corinthians says. Lord, bless our time this morning as we continue to talk about how to read the scriptures and uh, pray that it would be a, a sweet time. In your name, amen. All right, we've been talking about how to read the Bible and um, uh, we're seeking, the master question is what is the human author intending? We've talked about the kind of this methodology of observation, interpretation, then application uh, for working through different texts of scripture. But we said that if you're in a different genre, different kind of classification of scripture, then the, what you're looking for, and the rules change a little bit. So, uh, for example, what do you, like, what's one of the things that you're most interested in in New Testament epistles? Like, what's one of the things to most pay attention to? We kind of work through that First Thessalonians a little bit, and what's one of the big things that you're, you're kind of on the lookout for in a New Testament epistle? Well, author's intent, we're always looking for that, but there's a specific... Um, component of uh, being in a letter that you're on the lookout for. Audience, uh, it ends, starts with con and ends with junction. Thank you. Yeah, conjunction. Very good. Uh, very good job. Um, uh, conjunctions. Uh, conjunctions because in an epistle, uh, you are you state something, right? Paul states something, he states an idea, and then he relates it to another idea with a conjunction. So if you're in the New Testament epistle, you're going to watch your conjunctions a lot. Uh, verses, let's switch over to poetry, that would include both, uh, both uh, Psalms and Proverbs. Uh, both of those, they're different, but they're, they're related in that they're both poetry. What's one of the key aspects of poetry in the Old Testament that you're on the lookout for? Parallelism, there's a good, there's more, right? There's more than that, but there's parallelism. Um, you're pairing ideas and you're comparing and contrasting them in line one and line two. Okay, now we switch over to another genre, which actually the ladies' Tuesday morning Bible study, Tuesday afternoon Bible study has been working on, and that is narrative. Narrative. Now, if you think about narrative in the Bible, how much of your Bible is made up of narrative? Quite a bit, right? A lot. Uh, and in fact, if we think about the whole Bible as a story, right, it is true, it is real, um, but it is a story nonetheless. It is itself, from Genesis to Revelation, a narrative. Uh, then a, it makes sense that a lot of uh, the books are narrative itself because it's advancing the plot. And so 
um, as we come to the scriptures and we want to read them well, we want to understand some things to watch out for as you read narrative. Now, narrative is hard. It's the thing that we are probably, in general, we, in the sense we, we don't mind it because it's like, oh yeah, I can read that. Um, and it's a nice story and I can follow along. But it's hard in the sense of, um, why would we prefer something like a New Testament epistle to narrative? Let's put the, frame the question that way. Why would we prefer the New Testament epistle to narrative in general? Like, why do we like new t- epistles better than narrative? Okay, there's a personal aspect to it. Yeah, uh, epistles are really great. They're like, Paul's like, love one another. All right, I get that. Uh, I can do that, right? Um, why, why is it harder with narrative? It's not as direct. Now, it is still teaching, narrative is still teaching a theological truth, and it is still implicitly telling you to do something. But it's harder because it's not direct, right? Uh, it's not like Paul saying, love one another, serve one another. Uh, it's, it's, it, it paints a picture that's real and true, uh, but it's framed in such a way to indirectly tell you the truth, right? And uh, you, have to, you have to work harder and to know what you're looking for in narrative to know same question, what is the human author intending? So whether you're talking about Moses or Samuel or whoever is writing the narrative, they have an intent for their audience. They're trying to get their audience to get something from the narrative. But um, it's different than an epistle. And so what I want to do this morning is give you a few things to be on the lookout for to kind of shape your mind as you're thinking about reading narrative for the human author's intent. Um, I'm going to highlight a few of these. You might think of the things that we're talking about. Um, they're going to help shape the sorts of observations and questions you're going to ask. So remember, observation, interpretation, application. The things I want to walk you through are kind of the things to be on the lookout for, just like we're on the lookout for conjunctions in a New Testament epistle. These are the sorts of things you want to be on the lookout for in a narrative. The first thing is, uh, let's talk about narrative. The narrative is built, a narrative in general is built up two things, a narrator and a plot, okay? A narrator and a plot. What is a plot? A plot is a story that highlights causal relationships. In other words, um, there's more to a plot than just, okay, this happened, then this happened, this happened, this happened. There's a strategic reason that the story is told the way it is, um, so the narrator is putting things together in such a way to highlight uh, causal relationships. This happened because of this. And through some of that, he's telling you, here's the intent. Now, you might have seen this in school. I don't, I don't know. Um, depends on your background. Uh, doing uh, literary analysis, looking at other, even just extra-biblical just current literature stories, but when you have a plot, it basically goes like this. You have, um, I'll go from this angle a little better. Um, You have what's known as exposition. The beginning of the story tells you some details that get you into the world, right? Um, It tells you some background info. And then something happens that kicks off the plot. 
Uh, it's called, uh, the technical term is an inciting moment. All you need to know is something happens to start some tension into the story. And then the tension builds. It builds and builds. So we're, we're on the horizontal to begin with. Nothing's happening. Then something happens. And then tension starts to build and build and build and build until we reach what? Climax. Exactly. You guys got it, right? A climax, a peak in the storyline where, um, okay, all the tension builds. We get some... Uh, resolution, we get some answers, uh, and yet uh, the tension, and then what happens, you get this peak, and then the tension starts to fall. As the author, the narrator kind of wraps up threads, uh, and then we kind of reach back down to our kind of flat level, where every, all the ending, where everything's tied up, all the loose threads, that's how plot works. Now, they can be very complicated and mix and match elements, but that's a basic outline of a plot. You've got you know, exposition, there's something that happens, it raises the tension, you get a climax, you get this falling action, and then you get the ending, where everything's wrapped up. So that, in general, is what happens even in biblical narrative, okay? Um, for example, turn to Genesis 37. So, Genesis 37 through 50 in the book of Genesis are what is known as the Joseph narrative, because it deals with Joseph. Um, actually, there's a lot more going on in the Joseph narrative than just Joseph, uh, but uh, you, you now obviously Genesis is a whole story, but within that story you get another story, and so you get what's called the Joseph narrative, and let's start in um, 37.1. Uh, Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. Okay, nothing has happened. No tension. It's just background information. Until we get this. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their fathers. And that starts to kick off some tension. Now, it, um, there's even there's still some background information that's happening, but uh, you know we get now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. So we've got some background info, but already we're starting to get some tension rising in the narrative. Because we see these characters, uh, we've got favoritism happening, uh, and it creates this dynamic between Joseph and the brothers, okay? So, um, and then if you remember, we, we know the Joseph narrative, so tension builds and builds and builds. Where would you say the climax, if you remember uh, just the kind of general outline of the Joseph narrative, where would you say the climax is? Well, he gets cast into the pit, right? But um, there's, there's still tension, and there's still even more tension that arises, because after the pit, right, he ascends, and he becomes second in command and all of that. Uh, wh where else might we? The big reveal. Yeah, the big reveal, right? Where there's, um, and what happens, what's interesting, leading up to the big reveal, there's this big speech by Judah Judah's one of the ones in chapter 37 who says, hey, let's throw him into a, uh, let's sell him. 
let's sell him. Um, and then you get this like huge speech by Judah leading up to Joseph just breaking down and revealing himself, right? So that's your climax. And then that's, uh, I think that's chapter 44, I want to say. And basically from 44 to 50, it's, wrapping, it's falling action and it's wrapping up loose ends. So it follows that same general pattern of plot. Um, so when you're looking at a biblical narrative and you're reading the scriptures, your scope of how much text you're taking in to get the author's intent is very large. Because the author is showing you an intent, not just in one scene of that narrative, but the whole narrative. So rather than talking about, say, a paragraph to, uh, for an idea in a New Testament epistle, now you're talking whole ch- at least a chapter, if not more uh, than a chapter in narrative. That's why it's so hard, okay? Or that's one of the reasons it's so hard. You're taking in a lot more, a lot more material to get to the author's intent, okay? Any questions so far? Okay, now, one of the key things um, about narratives is this, and you know this to be true from watching movies or reading other books. Uh, It's something called the law of thrift, and the idea is the narrator rarely gives you all the info that he could, the narrator holds information back. He doesn't tell you everything. Um, why would he do that? Why would a good narrator, and you can think even beyond scriptures at this point, just think of good movies or good books, why would the narrator hold back things that he could tell you but doesn't? Mm-hmm. Yeah, builds, right? right? If he holds the information back, right, it gets you thinking, it gets you drawn in, um, and, uh, and the narrator wants you to think. That is the idea. He withholds information and creates what's called gaps. And the idea of gaps is, is um, he wants you to fill in the gaps. So the narrator will withhold something, and there'll be gaps, and he wants you to think about what you've seen in the narrative so far, to draw implications and fill the gaps. That's where it becomes uncomfortable because you, in narrative, you have to be comfortable with drawing inferences. What do we say about New Testament epistle? New Testament epistle is direct. It tells you straight up, this is what you're doing. With a narrative, you have to be able to draw inferences from the story. And that feels way more subjective and feels way more um, difficult. It's not explicit, it's implicit. Now, the author still wants you to do that. Uh, His intent is to get you to think that way, and he wants you to draw inferences, but it's difficult. So, um, here's something to think about as you are drawing, uh, you're drawing implications. You think about who has... Who's the most trustworthy? Okay, so when you think about a narrative, who's the most trustworthy in a narrative? Who has all the power and can be absolutely trusted? The author, the narrator, absolutely, right? So whenever the narrator tells you something, like, this happened because of this, 
or so-and-so was like this, then you know from a biblical standpoint, okay, I'm going to pay attention to that because the author's telling me something and he can be absolutely trusted. Now, here's the second level uh, as you work through these things. Um, Direct speech, uh, either internal to the character or external or from the characters or other colors. When there's dialogue in a narrative, and there's a lot of dialogue in narrative, um, direct speech of the characters, the characters themselves aren't as trustworthy as the narrator, are they? The author of scripture, the narrator, uh, can accurately record um, people that aren't trustworthy in what they say. For example, in the Joseph narrative, who's a good example of someone who's, like, they say something and you know they're not trustworthy? Potiphar's wife. Yeah, Potiphar's wife in Genesis 39. The narrator tells you what happens, so he's absolutely to be trusted. And then what happens later in chapter 39 is that Potiphar's wife talks to Potiphar. uh, Well, actually, she talks to two people. She talks to the other slaves first, and she actually talks to then Potiphar. And she's saying stuff, but she is untrustworthy, right? Uh, But from that dialogue, um, you can still draw inferences. For example, we can draw the inference that uh, Potiphar's wife is untrustworthy, right? We can draw inferences about her character uh, and what she's doing. So you've got the narrator is always, you listen to him, he's absolutely trustworthy. Then you've got direct speech, which is you're thinking about what people are saying and how they're talking. And then you've got, at the next level down, action or appearance. Uh, For example, for example, um, verse 3 in chapter 37 in Genesis Now, Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe. Now, I hate to spoil it for you. It's not a robe of many colors. It's a long robe. It's a robe that reaches to your your wrists and to your ankles. And that's significant in Hebrew culture because that designates... The only other time you see that in the scriptures is both David's sons. Um, it's the symbol of authority and royalty and ruling. So, in any case, uh, what is, so we already know that from the narrator, right, the narrator tells us Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons, so that's absolutely trustworthy, but we get even more just from hearing that the, um, that he, he gave him a robe, a a long length robe, a robe that reaches to here, um, on your wrists and to the ankles, that's literally what's being designated here. Now, uh, what, and I just told you what that represents. So what is the text by the appearance? What is that telling us? What's Jacob's? He's more status than all his brothers, right? What, his father's recognizing that. So what, how do we glean that information? The text doesn't tell us that directly. I mean, we do get the favoritism aspect. But it doesn't tell us that he, Joseph, or J- Jacob is intending to make jo- Joseph like the ruler over his brothers. We infer that from the appearance of Joseph with this cloak. Does that make sense? So there's all these aspects. You've got the narrator tells you stuff. You've got um, di- dialogue that helps you discern things, direct speech. 
And then you've got things like action and appearance that help us discern, okay, what's being communicated um, through this. Yeah, Bruce. Yeah, exa uh, exactly, except that notice, even ex it, it does confirm the aspect of they see, they know that their father loves Joseph, but that doesn't necessarily imply that he's going to be ruler o over them, but the communication of his appearance and what that would mean in that culture not only says there's favoritism, but Jacob's intending to make Joseph, who's like the youngest uh, basic, well, I mean, there's Obviously, there's Benjamin in that, but he's intending to make him kind of the overseer of his brothers, which is a big deal in Genesis because who's the firstborn? Where's the seed going to come from? It's a big deal, okay? Um, but where do we discern that? We discern that, in this case, from appearance, okay? But you, again, that's an inference. We're drawing that from the text um, indirectly. Okay, so that's something you have to keep in mind about uh, Hebrew narrative, the narrate, or well, Old Testament, New Testament, um, there's, there's similarities there. The narrator rarely gives you all the info you could want. Um, he's wanting you to draw inferences. How do we draw inferences? Well, the narrator tells us. We can look at direct speech. Uh, we can look at action and appearance and things like that. Um, speaking of characters, that is another key thing uh, to be watching in a narrative. Because uh, it's not just the plot, but it's the characters in that plot. And you guys are familiar with this. Um, you, you guys have heard of a, a dynamic versus a static character? Uh, or put, um, what's a dynamic character in a, in a story? What's that? Could be reactive, but even more than that, like if we think about over the course of a story, a dynamic character is one who what? He interacts with the story and he changes, changes, right? Someone who changes, who develops. Uh, there's more, even you can say, uh, you can look at it in another way. There's round versus flat. Does, he, does the character have depth or is it pretty flat? Uh, that's another way to look at characters. Or you have static characters. They never change. For example, Potiphar's wife is a static character. She never changes. She starts the, the, from the beginning to the end. She's the same sort of character versus... Does Joseph change in the narrative? At least some. Yeah, I mean, it seems like there are aspects of change. Does Judah change in the narrative? The brothers change a lot, right? They're dynamic characters. So as you're watching the plot unfold, you want to watch characters, and you want to say, well, what kind of character is this? Are they changing? How are they changing? Because all of this feeds into the idea of authorial um, intent. Okay, so um, let's look, look at, just to illustrate this, uh, Genesis 37, and let's, let's read 18 through 24. Someone go ahead and read Genesis 37, 18 through 24.
Okay, now a little background here. You guys know who uh, Reuben, which birth order he is? What's that? He's the oldest. He's number one. Now, uh, what you don't know, and you get this actually before chapter 37, he sleeps with his father's concubine. Now, what do you think that does with your relationship with your dad? Uh, in fact, by the end, you figure out that like he gets disinherited. He doesn't get the right of the firstborn because of that. So what is Reuben really trying to do here? He's trying to get back into his father's good graces, right? So he has this plan of what to do, right? Um, and, uh, and what goes on there. Now, the next order of birth, you've got uh, Simeon and Levi. Simeon and Levi, like, wiped out a whole town. Um, and so they're kind of in not good standing either. The fourthborn is Judah. The fourthborn is Judah. Okay? So look at verse 25. And they sat down to eat. And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels, bearing gum, balm, and myrrh, and on the way to to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, Hey, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let um, not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, he is our own flesh. And his brother listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. Who got listened to, Judah or, or Judah or Reuben? Judah got listened to. And in fact, you see that develop over the plot, um, plot line. You'll see later that when they're all like starving because of the famine, Reuben says, um, hey, I'll go down and I'll rescue my brother. And if I don't rescue him, you can kill my two sons, which doesn't make any sense. And, uh, and Reuben doesn't get listened to, but then Judah talks to Jacob, and Judah gets listened to. What is that? That's part of observing Judah's character and how he interacts, and how, whether he's listened to or not, how he interacts with the other characters, and all of that feeds into what's being portrayed through the plot. And uh, even the idea of change. Uh, you get to Genesis 38, which is Judah and Tamar, which is like strange, like, why is this in here? Well, it's a big turning point because by the end you get uh, Judah acknowledging something that, okay, this person, Tamar, is more righteous than I. And the next time you see Judah doing something, he's arguing for Benjamin's life. So you see a huge character change in him. And then even what's more interesting, remember the, the wrap-up happens kind of in the last few chapters, so 50, 49, 48. In chapter 49, when Jacob gives all the blessings to the 12 sons, the two that are most highlighted are Joseph and Judah. Um, and uh, Judah gets the kingly promise uh, because essentially you see his character change through the Joseph narrative. So it's not just the Joseph, what's going on is him as a character, it's also guys like Judah and how they're interacting with others. So it's a huge difference for Initially. Initially. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, both hands. Yeah. Yeah. So they. Yeah. <laughs> It's like, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll go ahead and put him into the pit and, let, you know, and, and let him die there, right? But then Judah's got a better suggestion, and so they listen to him. Um, so, but all of that, it's, it's a really dynamic story, but you want to pay attention to, hey, how is this character being portrayed? Uh, what's, what's, uh, uh, what's going on there? So, and that helps you infer, and over the course of the whole story, watching that, infer, what is the human author saying? Uh, and even in particularly with Judas' turnaround, uh, there's this aspect of where he changes and he rep- 
seems to repent in a lot of ways, and uh, that's what ends up, uh, he's, he ends up being the kind of leader through which the kingly line is going to come. And even in a lot of ways, that becomes a lot more the focal point, in a sense, of the Joseph narrative than even Joseph, which is just interesting. So there's stuff with Joseph too, but um, there's more to it than just Joseph. But by watching the characters, um, you, can, you can do that. Does this make sense? So there's, there's all these aspects that you're trying to just keep an eye out for. And we do this, we, we do it without thinking with like movies, right? You watch a movie, you watch the characters, you watch the plot. It's the same sort of thing you're, you're doing, just with written um, scripture, uh, and trying to discern the human author's intent as you're, you're doing that. Jo- uh, Tony. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yep, absolutely. So what's going Genesis has ramifications for all the rest of the storyline, right? And even particularly what happens with the brothers here has ramifications even down to the distribution of the land. Absolutely. So, um, okay. We talked about plot. We talked about characters. We talked about filling in gaps. Um, here's another key one. This is really an important tool for looking at narrative. Repetition. Repetition. Um, now, repetition, uh, there can be of a lot of different types. Uh, we can be um, verbatim, like the exact same thing is repeated, or it can be more like a repeated idea. Um, but repetition is always strategic by the narrator. It's always strategic by the narrator. What the narrator is doing is, so we've got first instance, second instance, and what the narrator is doing, regardless, is he's drawing a connection between those two repetitions. He wants you to draw a connection between the repetitions and to think about why did the author connect them, okay? So, um, like I said, there's many different types of this. Um, one uh, that you see in the Joseph narrative, uh, what happens in his dreams? Remember his dreams? What happens? Everyone's bowing down to him. Now that word, bowing down, you see it not only in Joseph's dreams, not only when the brothers come and bow down to him, uh, but you also see it in Genesis 49 when Jacob is blessing the children. It says, Judah, your brothers are going to bow down to you, which is really interesting compared to everything, the rest of the uses of bow down in the narrative. But that's a repetition. It's a repetition throughout the narrative that the author is using to get you to think, hey, remember I said bow down here, 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 and here. Now here's another instance. Uh, What do all of these have in common? Why are they different? He's trying to get you to think about that. That's, he's trying to, um, here's another type of repetition that doesn't necessarily use words uh, or like, an exact repetition, and put it that way, uh, something called a motif, something that's tactile in nature, something that you can grab hold of, something like clothing. Is clothing a big deal in the Joseph narrative? We already talked about the long robe. Uh, what other kind of clothing um, do you maybe see um, in the Joseph narrative or that you, you remember? Someone mentioned Joseph going to prison. What happens after 
he gets promoted. It, the text specifically says his clothing gets changed. Um, and even you think about, uh, he had this long robe from his father, right? What do they do with the long robe in, in the, the story, the brothers? They put blood on it, right? And what happens? He goes down into a pit. And then what happens? He goes down, after the whole Potiphar incident, he goes down into a pit. It's actually the same word. And, uh, but what happens? His clothing changes. And a change in clothing uh, from prison to being elevated, a clean change of clothing is a change of status. So you have this idea of a motif where it's not like it's a repetition in words per se. It's a repetition of kind of something tactile. Here's another one. Does silver figure prominently in the Joseph narrative? Like silver is, you know, it's like money, right? Or like a material. It's very tactile, right? It's, uh, but does it, where does it show up in the Joseph narrative? Sell him? Yeah, when they buy wheat. And what else? Uh, in, in connection with buying wheat, what else? A, a silver cup, right? So um, there's, there's all, that's another motif in the Joseph narrative. Like there's, that's just another thing that's part of the narrative structure that is giving us clues about what is the author thinking about? What's he doing with this? So I see something repeated, right, from here to here, and it could be something like a word, or it could also be something like a motif, like silver. And then you ask the question, well, what's the author doing with that? The author wants me to think about that uh, and what's happening there. Um, let's see, what else? Um, you can get a sequence of actions of repetition. I already mentioned uh, what happens to Joseph. The brothers strip him of the cloak. He goes down into a pit, and then he goes down to Egypt. And then from uh, he ends up going down into prison. And then what? He gets elevated, right? So there's even this idea of action, of, of ascent or descent. Um, there is also things like... Um, uh, there can be things like uh, look at look at Genesis thirty nine. <clears throat> Someone read um, Genesis thirty nine one and two. Oh, you're, you're good. Thanks. So, uh, why was Joseph successful with his Egyptian master? Yeah, God was with him. Now, go to the end of the... So, then, chapter 39 happens. Potiphar, throwing him in jail. Potiphar's wife. All that happens. Gets in prison. And then, look down at verse 23. Uh, actually, let's do 22 and 23. Someone go ahead and read 39, 22, and 23. Okay. 
Okay, so do you see a repetition there? Yeah, beginning to end, we've got a repetition of, in this case, words, right, of what? What's the repetition? The Lord was with them. The Lord made it succeed, right? Uh, and in this case, it forms kind of boundaries of the whole chapter, but it also contributes to a broader theme in the Joseph narrative, which Joseph will kind of say at the end, right? You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Um, so again, there's another aspect of repetition. Here's another one type of repetition that you might see. Actually, you see it in Genesis. You actually see it in Exodus as well. Um, it's the idea of a type scene. Now, let me give you an illustration from all our culture before we look at the biblical narrative. If I tell you about a Western, and I say, describe to me what the draw in the Western looks like. What is a, what is a draw in a Western going to look like? There's going to be a gunfight, but what in particular comes to your mind when, when I talk about a draw... Yeah, there's quickness, but usually there's a particular scene that happens when you talk about a draw. What happens? There's a standoff. There's two men, right? There's the, when, I, when we talk about a draw, there's, there's the two men. Maybe there's a street. There's a main street. Uh, one guy comes out. The other guy comes out. They're staring each other down. Usually it's high noon, and they've got... I mean, there are multiple Westerns have this, right? Uh, yeah, or every one, right? Uh, or even even... Even on variations, uh, like uh, space westerns have the same scene in it, too. It's, 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 but what is that? It's a type scene. It's something that we're all culturally familiar with, so that you know, even without knowing a movie, like what the elements of that scene are. Yeah, a trope. Um, what's that? Who's the winner? The good guy. Yeah, the good guy's the winner. <laughs> and, <laughs> but see and then what's interesting is because we have a trope or a type scene which we're all familiar with then the narrator in the next time he introduces a type scene because he has those pre-stored in your mind then he can start messing with you and he can start tweaking the type scene so that maybe the bad guy wins uh, like I saw one recently where the bad guy actually wins the draw and he's tweaking your expectations to get you to think now, let's think about the biblical narrative. Uh, tell me about the type scene of meeting at a well. Meeting at a well. What happens when you come to the well? You find your wife, find your wife at the well, right? Uh, it, it happens, right? So you've got, um, remember Abraham's servant? He goes to Haran, and he comes to a well, and he prays, but then uh, he finds Isaac's wife at the well. Uh, what, uh, where else do you see the well scene? <laughs> oh, there you go. Now you're thinking, uh, w uh, wait, but yeah, exactly. There's, there's similarities. It's a type scene. Now there's changes in it, but what's get talks about at the well? Well, you had five husbands and the one you have now is not your husband, right? So there's a lot of repeated ideas and elements or, uh, Moses, Moses, right? Moses comes to the well. He fights off the Egyptians. Or Jacob. Jacob comes to the well, and then he... See, this is a type scene, right? Um, and so it's something that's so familiar that gets used, not just in one book, but also in uh, the whole biblical narrative. And those are the sorts of things you want to pay attention to, because it's like, all right, what, what is happening here? Why is he using this repetition? What is the author doing with it? 
Um, That's a lot of what happens. And there's others too, right? So um, those are very important. It's just another type of repetition. So what does repetition do? Repetition does a lot of things in narrative. It can progress the plot and narrative. Uh, it can form boundaries like we just looked at in Genesis 39. We had a repetition at the end in the beginning. Actually, in the passage I'm preaching in Matthew today, there's a repetition with a, an earlier section in Matthew, which drew my attention. It forms boundaries. Um, it can uh, create commentary. Uh, so here's, a, here's an example. What happens in Genesis 38? You got Judah and Tamar. What happens, basically? Weird details, yeah, but without going into all the details, what basically happens in Genesis 38? Judah and Tamar. Judah gets seduced, doesn't he? Now, what happens in Genesis 39? Joseph is there with Potiphar's wife, and what's going on? He doesn't get seduced, right? So um, even in things like that, right, what is the author trying to get you to do? It's a repetition in the sense it's like, hey, this is a similar situation to what just happened, and he's getting you to compare and contrast the two, especially with Joseph and Judah. He's getting you to compare and contrast. So sometimes repetition is for that. Normally, we think of repetition for emphasis, but that's like the last option in narrative. He rarely, rarely does the author repeat something for emphasis. He's getting you to do something different uh, with repetition. So we've talked about um, the plot. We've talked about filling gaps in narrative. We've talked about characters. Uh, we've talked about repetition. We'll talk about a couple more things next time, but then we'll go ahead and try to practice this a bit on Ruth. So if you want to, before next week, if you want some um, practice with narrative, you might read Ruth a few times. It's short, four chapters. You can read it pretty quickly. But start looking for the plot. Where's the climax? Uh, you know, and you might already know where that is. Um, you know, look for characters, how are characters portrayed. Just look for some of the things we're talking about. And I think you'll find that it enriches your reading of the narrative, but it also helps you get at the author's intent uh, more quickly. So talk about a couple more things, and then we'll try to practice on Ruth next week. So let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your story, which is real, which is true, which is still unfolding, and yet we have the plot arc from Genesis to Revelation, and we know the climax is your coming, Lord Jesus. Um, your first coming um, and then we know you're coming again for that, that second climax, oh Lord God. And we, we long for that. We long for you to come. We long for you to tie up uh, the loose ends of the story. Um, and we long for you to be glorified in that. Help us to be better readers of scripture, better readers of narrative. Help us to see what we ought to see in narrative to be able to learn how to read it better. Lord, we love you. Uh, pray for our hearts for the gathering that's going to happen here shortly. Pray that you would be honored in it. Pray that you would your word would be heard, that you would change our hearts, because only you can do that. We ask these things in your name. Amen.